evidence and answers. Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? The Bible and Jesus teach that Moses is the author of the Pentateuch. However, most Old Testament scholars teach that the Pentateuch was written in the 8th century BC by four priestly schools who created a mythical history for the Israelites. Is there evidence for Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat presents part two of session four, taken from a recent conference hosted by the Wailai Baptist Church in Hawaii. Here he addresses the challenges of the documentary hypothesis, one of the most influential theories dominating our colleges and seminaries today. Now, here's Pat. Here are the flaws to the Wellhausen theory. Number one, scripture affirms mosaic authorship of the first five books. The Old Testament says that God spoke to Moses directly. Joshua affirms mosaic authorship. Throughout the Old Testament, it, it calls it the law of Moses. Jesus calls the first five books the law of Moses. Okay? So throughout scripture, the Son of God himself refers to those first five books as the law of Moses. Second of all, there is no evidence of any of these schools. Okay? They say we need to find external evidence for the Exodus. We need to find external evidence for King David. We need to find external evidence outside the Bible for Solomon. They don't apply it to themselves. We have never found external evidence that these priestly schools ever existed. We have no evidence of that. No writings that says anywhere in the Hebrew writings, in Josephus, in anybody, that there were such schools around. Okay? Let's apply the same principles to these guys. Walt Kaiser, right, he's one of the pillars of Old Testament studies today. Okay? He's one of the last four horsemen of the Old Testament. Great, phenomenal scholar to read. By the way, very funny guy. You know, he's hilarious. I'm trying to get him to Hawaii someday. He's just a funny guy. Anyway, he says this. I've never seen any of these men, nor their documents, nor has anyone else. You must understand, these are literary fictions. They have been created by opening the Bible, throwing up the criteria, closing the Bible, and then being surprised that it works. It sounds a little bit like a sort of hitting the barn door and then drawing circles and saying, bullseye, we made it. All right, we've never found any documents or historians that these schools exist. Third, there's no agreement as to which sections of the Pentateuch belong to which schools. Okay, after nearly 200 years, the JEPD scholars still can't tell you this section is J, this section is E, this section is P. They still can't tell you. They're all over the place. Okay, there's no consistency when you study these scholars. Walt Kaiser again says, the second problem seems to me that there is no single historical critical method. You would think all these scholars are agreed. Wrong. I have never seen unanimity on any book with regard to what document it belongs. What's the extent of that document and under what conditions it's written? There just does not appear to be that kind of thing. So that the historical critical method doesn't exist. There are many historical critical methods and as many historical critical results almost as there are scholars. So after 200 years of this theory, you would expect agreement on significant sections of the Old Testament, but there isn't. 
Hey, Gleason Archer, who passed away not too long ago, is another phenomenal scholar. Okay, in his book, Introduction to the Old Testament, he does an analysis of this, and he shows you they are all over the place. They don't know who wrote J, who wrote E, who, what sections belong to what schools. There's no unanimity among scholars on this. Fourth, no JEPD documents have ever been found. One of the most significant documents we have is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Hundreds of manuscripts and fragments have been found. Never do they mention any of these great priestly schools of JEPD. Never do they mention this is, comes from J tradition. This comes from the E tradition. They don't mention anything of that. No traces even amongst the great Dead Sea Scrolls. Kenneth Kitchen in his book, on the Old Testament. Okay, that's a monumental landmark book here okay, on the reliability of the Old Testament. It's a highly academic work here. If you, if you get really get serious about this, Kenneth Kitchen is the guy to read. He says, there's no objective independent evidence for any of these compositions anywhere outside the Bible. All right, so if we're looking for evidence outside the Bible to confirm the Exodus, to confirm Moses, to confirm Sodom and Gomorrah, to confirm David and so We don't have any for JEPD. Dead Sea Scrolls show no sign of JEPD. If we demand external evidence for biblical figures and events, why not for JEPD? We don't have anything that these schools ever existed. We have no manuscripts or evidence at all that they existed. Now this is from a Yale scholar. Yale is not the bastion of conservative Christianity, okay? It is not. The Yale scholar, Willem Hollow, writes about the lack of evidence that supports this theory. So this is coming from one of their own guys, okay? And he says this, literary critical study of the Hebrew Bible has had a checkered history. The JEPD, documentary hypothesis, with which it began over 200 years ago, remains to this day a hypothesis. The JEPD documents, which it reconstructed, are beyond recovery. Their precise extent, their absolute and relative dates, and their changes over time are all matters of dispute. And the applicability of the hypothesis beyond the Pentateuch is severely limited. Given such disparate and even desperate reactions to two centuries of modern biblical scholarship, it is perhaps not surprising that much of the most exciting work has been from epigraphic or archaeological discoveries. Archaeology is confirming the historical integrity of the Bible. JEPD is nearly a 200-year-old theory that should be re-examined and challenged, and it is by conservative evangelicals, but not by the liberal community or even the proponents. It's based on ancient 200-year-old archaeology, and we found Thousands. We made thousands of archaeological discoveries since then. Now, if you look at the internal evidence, you'll see that whoever this author is, he understands Bronze Age culture. He understands the geography, the plant life, the wildlife. He understands Egyptian culture, Canaanite culture, and Israelite culture, whoever this author is. And Moses would be a great and most reasonable candidate. He possesses a high degree of education and literary skill, which he wrote 
these documents. He's very familiar with Egyptian, Hebrew culture, and the culture of Canaan. He's very familiar the names of Egypt, expressions, customs, and culture, along with Canaanite culture as well. There's unity of arrangement and harmony pointing to a single author. Now, the Wellhausen theory is based on ancient archaeology. Remember, Old Testament scholars don't study the archaeology. If you put the two together, you're going to see the archaeology blows holes in the documentary hypothesis. And it's built on the premise that there's no phonetic alphabet system until about the 10th century BC. So Moses could not have written the Pentateuch. Now, that premise that there's no phonetic alphabet until the 10th century BC has been blown to shreds by modern archaeology. We have found hundreds of documents throughout the Levant and the Middle East showing what? There's a phonetic alphabet system in place hundreds of years before Moses. And in fact, we have law codes that are very similar to the Old Testament. And when you read the story of the patriarchs, Abraham giving, back then the people would give the majority of the inheritance to the firstborn son. You know, where in the world does that come from? Where does that idea come from? A lot of it is coming from the law codes that are already there. You look at the covenants that are built between Abraham and the kings of the area, or the covenants that's built between God and Abraham. They follow the covenant that are there in Mesopotamia and the Levant during the Middle Bronze Age, during the time of the patriarchs. The writing of the Pentateuch has Bronze Age all over it. Now, there are numerous writings okay, that show you there's a phonetic alphabet system hundreds of years before Moses. We have the Ebla tablets there dating 3rd century B.C., 2500 to 2200 B.C. That's anywhere from 1,000 to 800 years before Moses. Thousands of tablets we found up there in the Ebla kingdom, up there in modern-day Lebanon, northern Jordan, southern Syria area. Great kingdom that was up there. There are the tablets there. 10,000 tablets found. Most of them are the size of a cigarette pack. All right? I mean, they're, the way they wrote, yeah, I mean, it, tiny, tiny writing. Man, they had good eyes. Okay? But thousands of tablets there, uh, the Ebla tablets. Okay? And they confirm a lot of facts of the Old Testament. I mean, we found names in there that are Bronze Age names, right? Adam, Ishmael, and others. The cities named in the Bible that are key cities during the time of the patriarchs, Hatzor, Megiddo, Shechem, and others. The deities that are mentioned there in the Old Testament, Baal, Dagon, Molech, El, and others are named there in the Ebla tablets. Phenomenal discovery here. We have a law code here. The Hammurabi Law Code, or the Code of Hammurabi, dated 1750. This is during the time of Abraham. So Abraham, coming out of Ur of the Chaldees, may be familiar with the Code of Hammurabi. The things that Abraham does seem to reflect he knew the Code of Hammurabi. This is an ancient law code. This thing's about nine feet high, all right? And it's a pillar that's placed 
at government buildings or at libraries in major cities around Mesopotamia where Hammurabi ruled there, the old Babylonian kingdom, so that people would know the law of the land. And Hammurabi believed that he was appointed by the gods to establish justice and a rule of law in the land. All right, so he puts the law code, tremendous law code here in the code of Hammurabi. It was discovered in early 1900s there, and there's 282 sections in this great law. So there is a sophisticated law code centuries before Moses. And if you look, many of the law codes are similar to what Moses ends up writing. The Nuzi tablets there, discovered in central Mesopotamia, thousands of tablets reflecting societal law codes covering various aspects of society at that time. And guess what? There's a phonetic law code. And in the code of Hammurabi and in the Nuzi tablets, if a man has a wife and she cannot bear him a son, guess what she or he is allowed to do? He is allowed to either adopt a child or go into the maidservant okay, and produce an heir for his family there. That's what we see in Abraham, chapter 16. Okay, so we have the Rosh Shamra tablets and numerous other tablets that precede the time of Moses, which builds a good case. There's a phonetic alphabet system centuries before Moses. So one of the key arguments of the Wellhausen theory is pretty much blown to smithereens here. All right, so why does the theory continue to dominate most of our colleges and universities? Remember, it's because Old Testament scholars mostly just study the text. They don't study modern archaeology. Most Old Testament scholars really know nothing of the archaeology that is out there associated with the Old Testament. They don't even look or critique the Wellhausen theory. They pretty much accept it by faith. All right, now, here's some evidence for the Mosaic authorship, or whoever wrote this wrote it during the time of Moses, Middle Bronze Age II or the Late Bronze Age. And they're writing it during the time of Moses. First, as Scripture says, Jesus, the prophets, the apostles, all affirm Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Next, okay, when you look at the internal evidence, it smells of Bronze Age. All right? If someone today were writing about George Washington, it would kind of feel like a 21st century writing here. It would be written in our modern vernacular and all of this. But if you picked up a document and says, this is the biography of George Washington written during the time of George Washington. And it's written in the you know, colonial English, the kind of English that George Washington spoke about. And it's got intricate details of George Washington's life. I mean, very intricate, the kind of food he ate in the morning and the kind of clothes he wore. Indeed, I mean, if you got all that, a historian would be looking at this going, wait a minute, this, this wasn't written 21st century. The vernacular, the details, the under, all of this has the appearance this guy might have been a contemporary of George Washington. That's what we got okay, when you look at the internal evidence here. This author is from the time of Moses. He is a Bronze Age writer, not an Iron Age writer. Iron Age begins about 1000 B.C. 
He's running in a period before that. He's a bronze, he's got bronze age culture. It's just coming through all over there in the first five books. Okay? He understands the geography of the Middle East, okay? especially of Egypt and Sinai during the Middle Bronze Age. For example, in Genesis 14, there is a great battle, all right, in which the kings from Mesopotamia, led by Kedola Armor and others, crush a rebellion that is occurring down here in Canaan, okay, from the kings of the cities down here. So Kedola Armor and his alliance with numerous kings there, five kings from Mesopotamia, they come down here in that Genesis 14 battle, and they capture this land down here. The kings down here, Sodom and, and these cities down here are all in rebellion. But the first thing they do, they come east of the Jordan here, capture these cities, go down to El Paran, Kadesh Barnea, conquer these cities down here, suppress the rebellion over here. These cities are to be paying taxes to Ketalamar and their kings. Okay, kings of Sodom and all these kings rebel. Okay, then they come to Tamar, okay, and then they defeat these kings here, according to Genesis chapter 14. And this is where Lot is taken, right? Remember, Lot there is dwelling in Sodom. And he says that as these kings here are running away, they are running right along here, along the shores of the Dead Sea. And in that Genesis 14 passage, okay, it reads that these servants, they ran away, that they fell. They suddenly fell into these pits. It says here, now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. And some of his men fell into these pits, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all possession of Sodom and Gomorrah and their possessions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in the land of Sodom. All right, so these kings from Mesopotamia are chasing these Canaanite kings, and they're chasing them here along the Dead Sea, and they said they fall into these pits over here. Okay, these warriors, as they're running away, they fall into the pits over there. Well, those of you who've been to Israel, when you go along the Dead Sea, what do you see? All of these sinkholes suddenly appear along the Dead Sea. Okay, the Dead Sea comes up, and then when it withdraws, sinkholes suddenly pop up all along the Dead Sea. Right? So even to this day, they tell you, don't go walking along the Dead Sea by yourself. Why? Because a sinkhole might suddenly appear, and toot, you fall inside. And every year, they have to rescue dozens of tourists who don't listen. They decide to go running around the Dead Sea, and toot, they fall into this pit hole. And other people in the area, you can't see them. They're just walking and saying, whoa, where's John? The guy's gone. Whoa, where'd he go? Well, we don't know. He's gone. Okay, you can't see him. Uh, it has to be someone who's driving along the highway or higher up who can look into these pits and see these people. Okay, even if they're shouting or anything, you can't see them. Well, this guy describing exactly here what's happening during the battle. While these kings of Canaan are running away here, it says, uh, now the, in the valley of the Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some of them fell right into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. Whoever this guy is writing, he knows the terrain of this area. He knows it well. I mean, what you're looking for is what we call synchronisms. Okay, this kind of detail. Those of you who've never gone along the Dead Sea, you don't know this stuff. I didn't know this stuff. I studied the geography of it. I took a whole course in the geography. I didn't know about this stuff until I went to Israel. 
All right, and then I, we're driving along the bus there, and the tour guide says, hey, by the way, don't go running around the Dead Sea by yourself. You're going to fall into one of these sinkholes. They just suddenly pop up out of nowhere. All right, we don't know where they are. You may be walking, and there's a sinkhole underneath you, and your weight causes it to clap, and boom, you're going to disappear. We'll never find you again. So he said, don't go running. I didn't know that until I got there. How does a guy know this kind of detail who's never been to the Dead Sea? It's obviously someone who knows the terrain very well there. All right, so this story here, he's this, and, you know, and Abraham finds out about it, okay, and then he goes running up to Dan, and he defeats these, you know, and they're cruising out there, up in Dan and Damascus there. He goes up there, and he captures them, defeats them, kills them all, and then he rescues his son Lot. And in Genesis 14, he comes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem he comes back to Jerusalem down here, or Salem, and there's a king there named Melchizedek. He blesses Abraham in Genesis 14, and Abraham gives him one-tenth of his spoils there. What's going on? Well, Abraham, remember, is Habiru. He's a nomadic marauder. Okay, you don't mess with these guys. All right, they're not kindly shepherds with staffs running around with sheep, you know, kindly old gentlemen with a... They're marauders. They're warriors. All right, they're warrior shepherds. That's what they are. You don't mess with these guys, okay? Now, in fact, there is a professional football team in Washington that doesn't have a name yet or a mascot. Well, how about the Habiru? You know, hey, great mascot there. All right, the Washington Habiru. Well... The Habiru are nomadic warriors, and they need a territory where they can hang out and graze their animals and all of that. And so they make alliances with the kings of these city-states. And the kings of the city-states make an alliance, say, okay, you guys can hang out in our territory for your flocks. In return, you guys are the front lines of our defense. Should we be attacked, we expect that you guys will be the front lines and part of our defense. And in return, whatever booty you get, 10% of that comes to us. And also, of your flocks, your yearly you know, flocks and all those things, you pay some to us. That's the agreement they have, these alliances. So when these kings come, they attack Sodom and all that, and they capture a lot and defeat these kings. These kings are running away. So Abraham goes chasing after them, defeats them up here in Dan and Damascus, when he's coming back, he's giving 10% to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who he has an alliance with. Right now, if you read the Genesis 14 account, the king of Sodom is also there. All right? And he's saying, hey, Abraham, my man, my friend, my buddy. Hey, how about some of that tribute? Hey, and Abraham says, oh, no way. My alliance is with the king of Salem. And he gives it to the king of Salem, right? And king of Sodom's going to go, come on, my buddy, my man, my main man, my homeboy, come on. You know, Abraham says, no. Gives it to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. How does anyone know about an alliance like that, writing nearly a thousand years later? I mean, he doesn't have access to these kinds of Hittite or these kinds of Middle Eastern records. Even if he had them, he wouldn't know how to read a lot of them. These Egyptian or Hittite records, or these Akkadian records. How does he know this kind of detail? These are the kinds of things we're looking at. Okay, when a witness is on the stand, and he's being cross-examined, and saying, all right, so-and-so's dog is allegedly bit this guy, and this dog was not provoked. Right? And the witness on the stand says, no, that dog was provoked. 
and he's cross-examined. Who provoked him? That little kid over there that got bit. What was the kid wearing? Red t-shirt. What time was it? I was about dusk. The driving range was closing. No one was on the driving range except me hitting balls, and I saw that kid harassing the dog. That's why the dog bit on How long was the chain? Oh, the chain was about 30 feet. If this guy, if this witness is nailing all these details, he's a credible witness. And my friends have been on trial, and they can tell you on the testimony of one witness, if he is credible, lawyers can build their case. They often indict criminals and others based on testimony of one witness. If he's, if he's nailing all these details, you've got details like this throughout the Old Testament that are describing Egyptian, Canaanite culture, Middle Eastern culture there from the Bronze Age. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even hold a conference at your church or location, give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Please use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucarani.